When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Colin Miller, your host today, along with my partner, orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin. We also host the popular medical podcast, Pure Spectrum. Today's guest is Angus Fletcher, a professor of English at Ohio State University and faculty member of Project Narrative. He holds dual degrees in neuroscience and literature and a PhD in English from Yale. Our conversation today explores his new book, Wonderworks, the 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature. It was published by Simon & Schuster in March of 2021. And today we have Angus Fletcher with us. Angus, welcome to the show. It's Friday afternoon. This should be a lot of fun. I'm so happy to be here, Colin. I can't even tell you. Well, same here. So Angus, I thought maybe helpful to just take a quick perusal through your, your background. You made a pivot at some point from neuroscience to literature, but as we saw in your book here, that may not be a huge pivot. They're, they're pretty interrelated. So if you don't mind, just take us, take us on a quick background tour. Yeah, well, you're kind by saying it's interesting. Most people consider it uh, weird and even totally perverse because, uh, you know, in a modern world in which everyone is running forward to embrace uh, STEM and the sciences, I, for some reason, started out in STEM and the sciences and then ran in the other direction towards old books. Um, but yeah, my background is basically I, I uh, started out in neuroscience. I worked for four years in a neurophysiology lab at the University of Michigan, uh, studying cell secretion, how parts of the brain talk to each other. And uh, this was in a period um, in the late 90s where we were really starting to kind of think that we were starting to crack how the brain worked. Uh, but the thing that was becoming clear was that the brain didn't work the way that we thought it worked. Uh, we thought it worked on an engine of reason. We thought it worked like a computer. You know, we thought that it kind of followed these more logical models. But as we were discovering, and as we have seen over the past 20 years, the human brain is not particularly logical. Um, and in fact, a lot of the things that are powerful and amazing about it are its capacities of imagination, its, its abilities of, of creativity, innovation, its ability to leap. Um, those are all problems which, of course, can get us into, those are all powers which can get us into trouble. Uh, you know, we can very easily leap in the wrong direction or imagine things that aren't true. But I just started to think, you know, as a neuroscientist, wouldn't it be wonderful to understand creativity? Wouldn't it be wonderful to understand imagination and invention and innovation and all these unique things that are going on in the brain? And it occurred to me that literature seemed to be a wonderful space of imagination, of creativity, where people who have these ability to create whole new worlds, whole new characters, whole new stories, uh, were, were doing this sort of visionary original work. And so I thought, you know what, I'll leave the, the, the neuroscience lab and I'll go to Yale and I'll get a PhD in literature and I'll study Shakespeare. And so that was kind of the, the start of my, my pivot. Let's just start with some research. You, you mentioned this uh, uh, 
uh, earlier in the week uh, an email. You actually just finished up a longitudinal study at OSU. That's your school, Ohio or the Ohio State University, I should say. Um, and this was uh, with residents in the medical school there. Tell us a little bit about this. This isn't published yet, but this gives you, us an idea of one of the areas we're heading today. Yeah, so a lot of my work is collaborative um, because most of my work is empirical. Uh, I do a lot of randomized controlled studies, uh, trials with psychologists, neuroscientists, and increasingly with doctors. And um, it was brought to my attention that there's this thing known as burnouts, which I thought I understood because of course, like everyone else in the world, I, I, I think I'm suffering from burnout. But of course, it turns out that I am not, that there is actually a specific clinical definition of burnout, um, uh, you know, that is defined by the Maslach uh, instrument, um, and that tragically afflicts doctors at a far higher rate than members of almost any other profession. And I got together with our medical school, and we started talking about the fact that there are these incredibly high rates of burnout among the medical students there, and what could possibly be done to reduce some of the burnout. And one of the ideas that we tossed around was, well, what about literature? Uh, literature is known to um, have uh, an empathy effect. It's known to generate positive feelings, positive emotions. It's known to generate a sense of life meaning. And these are all processes, neural processes, which could potentially, we thought, um, kind of alleviate uh, some of the symptoms of burnout. And so we started a class uh, for the medical students in which they read literary works, uh, discussed them just like literature students. And we followed them through a uh, three year longitudinal trial. And we saw significant reduction in burnout. Um, and we're gonna use that we think as the starting point now for a, a, a bigger study, hopefully a, a randomized control trial. You know, I studied history when I was undergrad, Keith, studied literature. Um, but I, I think like many people listening, we know we have some serious deficiencies. And there were a lot of classes where we didn't read what we were supposed to read. And as you get busier and you become an adult, it gets harder and harder. I mean, a couple of years ago, I even bought on eBay this book set. It's called the uh, Harvard's Classics. And it was put together like 100 years ago. You're probably familiar with it. But if anyone isn't, there was this guy, Charles Elliott. He was the president of Harvard. And he was giving a speech one day to uh, like railroad workers or something. And he said, basically a classical education could be had by anyone in about five or six feet of book space on a shelf. So Collier, the publisher said, hey, well, let's just put that together and do it. And this is one of the early attempts to put together what people at that time, some people thought was the Western canon and what, you know, what was important to, to have covered. I haven't covered much of that at all other than what I've done earlier, but it's a reminder every time I go downstairs What's ahead of me? This book, though, Wonderworks, has given me a much different perspective and probably a different reason to approach literature. Tell us about this. What what sparked your interest here, and what what's what's uh, what is Wonderworks? Yeah, so Wonderworks is this book that I've just written, which is you know out on Simon and Schuster, and basically um, the book started uh, with an observation that literature has this healing effect, the same healing effect that I just talked about in that burnout study. Um, and beyond its healing effect, that literature also historically has had all these positive effects for us as humans to help us grow into our most complete selves. And what we are in terms of our most complete self, I think varies from person to person. What we want to be varies widely, but on a kind of basic root level, one of the things we want is a sense of emotional wholeness, 
So, you know, we all have grief in our past. We all have loneliness. We all have kind of difficult psychological feelings. We kind of want to work through and process as best as we can. So we don't take those out on ourselves and the people around us. Um, then beyond that, we also have the capacity for all this kind of positive emotional growth in terms of joy, empathy. And also, I think most profoundly, what, what makes us most ourselves is really curiosity, um, the desire to explore, to learn, to grow, um, not just in terms of reading books, but in terms of everything, to, to go to new places, to meet new people, to just kind of expand our mind. Um, and then beyond that, there's this extraordinary capacity, which I've sort of talked about a little bit earlier, just in terms of our creativity. It's just very important for us as humans to be able to be creative in some way, to be in a space where we can make things and build things and generate things. And literature has historically been a resource for helping us grow in all of these ways. It's helped people heal. Uh, in ancient Athens, it was used famously to help veterans recover from, from war um, in terms of helping develop empathy and curiosity. I mean, who hasn't read a book and felt caring for a character or wonder and curiosity about another world. And then in terms of generating our capacity for creativity, most people at some point in their lives, after they read a book, want to write one. Or after you read a poem, you want to write one. And there's this power and this effect. And so what I go through in WonderWorks is I basically say, we all know in general that this is what literature does. We all know in general that if we read it, it can make us feel better. Um, it can help us grow and it can even spark our imagination. But what if we could go beyond that? What if we could actually identify the nuts and bolts, the technology of literature? What if we could identify the specific inventions that actually are associated with these psychological effects? And then if we, what if we could start to test them scientifically to measure their effects on the brain? What that would do is that would mean that instead of treating literature the way we do now, so basically what we do now with literature is it's like if you just went into a pharmacy and just started eating, you know, pills, you know, like, I know this stuff is good. I'll just have some pills and see what happens to me, right? What if instead of doing that, we realized, oh, this book was built to have this effect and to help me deal with trauma. And what if this book was uh, built to help me have courage? And, you know, what if this book... Um, was built to help me become more creative. And then you can start to use literature more intentionally and then you can go to it and you can use it um, as a resource to help you get what you want. And so basically that's the idea behind the book is to give you those blueprints to empower you to get more out of what literature does by showing you how it works. Well, um, we're obviously going to tease out the, <clears throat> the medical response to this book because it, it should be amazing. This, this really is something people should read very seriously. What's been the literary response to this? What, how have the people in the uh, world of academia, particularly in the humanities, looked at this and said, oh, no, you've turned Jane Austen on her air. You've totally pulled the, the guts out of, of Mary Shelley. Or is it the opposite? They're saying, you know, we never looked at this. This is an amazing way to approach this problem. So this has been kind of the paradox of the book is it has received a lot of amazingly positive responses from scientists and from doctors and has been very, had a very negative response overall from literary scholars. Um, and we can talk about why that is, but it basically just flips the way that we think about literature. I mean, part of what it does um, is it says that literature is largely an emotional experience and a narrative experience. It's mostly about plots and characters. And it's about a lot of the things intuitively that we experience as humans. 
And what that does is it demystifies a lot of literature. And it also has this effect of undoing a lot of what we were taught to do in school. I mean, if you remember the way you were taught to read literature in school, you know, you go into a room with a book, you then focus with incredible intensity on the words on the page, you interpret them, you come up with arguments about what they mean, you argue with other people, and you write these combative papers about them, and so on and so forth. And this is the same method that was used in the Middle Ages to read the Bible. Um, and it's not a scientific method. <laughs> Whether or not there's value in it, I don't want to say, but it's not a scientific method. And so what I basically say is let's flip that. Let's forget about the words on the page. Let's focus on your experiences, what's happening in your head. Um, and let's start to trace those experiences back to uh, what we know about the history of literature and the technology uh, in the book. So the broad answer to your question is no, literary critics have not liked it. It does go completely against what most literary critics think. And I am part of a very small, tiny group of renegade scholars who's interested in what I would call a more scientific approach to literature that is empirically based. And, you know, if things in the book are wrong, they should be called out and debunked, you know, and we should move on. So in line with my general method, I'm not here to say this is the truth about literature. I'm just here to say this is our kind of best guess about how to use it. And hopefully this is a foundation for ongoing experiment. Well, no arguments here. I wish uh, this had been a little more part of the thinking when I was in high school, AP literature. Something else I wish I would have appreciated more, but I certainly do now reading your book, is that all these literary innovations were done by somebody at some point for the first time. I mean, these really were inventions. And let's take the novel, for example. At some point, nobody had written a novel before and someone did. We don't always know when this happened exactly or who did it. And it there may have been parallel innovations in different places at the same time. Let's talk about the Chinese novel. Uh, tell us what we know about this and how this is important, especially as a counter to Confucianism at the time. We're looking into the 1300s here, Angus. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, um, to your point about the fact that we don't, we're not encouraged to think about literature as new, the word novel just means new. I mean, that's what the word means. And at some point in history, everything in literature was created by someone. And the record is imperfect. And so we can't go back and say for certain, uh, this is who invented this, who invented that. But what I try and do in the book is, is tell the best story that we have and the best idea that we have. And in the case of, of the Chinese novel, which very interestingly emerged uh, several centuries before uh, the European novel, what we know is um, that uh, 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 the great uh, uh, Chinese novel, uh, the great Chinese uh, uh, novel, is an attempt to bring us into an imaginative world where we can let go of our preconceptions and open our minds and grow free from shame. And the reason this is important is because shame was kind of the driving uh, ethical emotion of Confucianism. Uh, which at the time was the Chinese state philosophy. Um, and the idea was that by experiencing shame, uh, by essentially feeling bad and negative about yourself, that made you more likely to behave. But what we know is that when you feel shame about yourself and when you're focused on behaving, uh, what that does is that stops you from being happy, being free, being creative, being dynamic, being uh, generative um, and in all being yourself, ways, 
in your being yourself, right? No, exactly. It's a it's a control mechanism. It's an emotional control mechanism. And there's some evidence in the book that I point out that actually shame has over time been replaced in the human brain by guilt, which is a less strong feeling. And because you know, shame is directed towards ourselves. So we feel shame at ourselves, whereas we feel guilty about a behavior. And the reason that's an important difference is because ourself is something that's not changeable. So if we feel bad about ourselves, that can initiate a kind of spiral of negative thinking. Whereas um, if we feel guilty about a behavior, we can change that behavior, feel good about ourselves and move on. And so, yes, yeah, so the first uh, uh, Chinese novel was written. It has a technology in it, which you can experience for yourself, which will release shame, which will make you feel more open, uh, more trusting of yourself and will allow you to be more yourself. So the time, um, you have to pronounce this name for me because um, I want to say it's Wang Z. Is that? Uh... Uh, Kao Shikung. Oh, 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 Zhuangzi. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Okay. Zhuangzi, yes. Yeah. So he was, let me, no, I'm sorry. Actually, let me take a step back here. This is Cow. I'm thinking about, the one who was taking the test, right? So he yes, finds Cal. this work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't sound so much different than what we see today, especially in places like South Korea. You know, you get your one shot to take this post-secondary school test. There's so much pressure put on these kids. This has been going on for a long time. And you, you described this back then. You'd be locked for days in a, in a room taking this. So, you know, some kids would just, you know, they, they would take their own lives or they, you know, drop from exhaustion. And this was, you know, this was your attempt to, to get out of rural China, to get a chance to, to work in the government. It's been going a long, long time. Um, the system works if you can get through, but if you're if you don't, you're you're left with the door slammed in your face. So he finds this, not even the whole work, right? He finds fragments. I mean, tell us about this. Yeah. So basically, and I will say this is something we don't just see in other parts of the world. This is something that's increasingly taking over the American educational system, yeah. where students are being forced to take these tests, uh, and their entire future is essentially being driven by their performance on these standardized tests. And what this culture of test taking does is it trains the brain to think there is a right and a wrong. And it trains us in a, in a psychology of judgment. And first of all, we um, turn that judgment on ourselves. So if we're doing bad on the test, we judge ourselves and we say, there must be something wrong with me. I'm not living up to these expectations. You know, I need to fix myself in some way. And then the more we go through that system and we become indoctrinated in it, the more we turn out to other people and start to judge them and say, they must be wrong because they're not like me. And so it produces this incredibly narrow focus of right and wrong, of black and white. And um, what you're talking about in terms of the tale of Wonton um, is a story that in fact encourages us to think that we don't know what's right. I won't spoil the tale for your audience, but basically um, two people who seem very good do something which has catastrophic results. Uh, and you know we're led along by the story to think, oh, they're doing this kind thing. They're helping someone. Um, they're doing something that he must want. And then the end of the story is this catastrophe, which actually completely undoes him and ruins his life. You know, And the point of the story is to make us go, whoa, like, you know, I thought that we were okay here because we were following the rules and then we followed the rules and it led to destruction. And that moment of pullback uh, led the novelist to say, okay, I want to write a novel that isn't about someone doing the right thing. Because typically, uh, that's what novels uh, 
previously in China had done is they'd said, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And if you go with the right way, you end up happy. And if you go the wrong way, you'll end up suffering. And again, a lot of American novels are like that. It's called poetic justice. You know, good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, you know. And what he said is, I want to have a totally different kind of novel in which you have two choices you can make and they're both good. And what that encourages your mind to think is there isn't a right choice. There are just different choices. And the more that your mind can think that there are different choices, the more that opens up tolerance of others and then also tolerance of yourself. Because the more that you're able to include diverse people in your group, the more studies have shown, the more likely you are to be kind to yourself. And so an example of this from the novel um, is uh, the um, invention of what uh, um, is known as the romantic triangle, basically, or the, uh, uh, the, the equilateral, uh, the romantic equilateral triangle. And what that means is, is what if you were to fall in love with two people who are totally different, but they're both completely right for you? And this is different from kind of a Harlequin romance, because in a Harlequin romance, you fall in love with two people, and one of them is the bad choice. You know, he's the bad guy or the bad girl, and you like her for all the bad reasons, you know, and it kind of brings out all the kind of, you know, reasons, you know, all the kind of like ugly emotions that you have in your head. And, 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 and then over time, you reform, you realize, no, 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 I can't go down that dark path. I've got to go with the good girl, the good guy, whatever. Well, that was in Frozen this morning. I was watching it with my daughter. It's been used again. That's right. Constantly. <laughs> well, I mean, that's exactly right, you know, and uh, and that's unfortunately Disney is responsible for a lot of this black and white thinking. I mean, anytime you watch a story that's about good and evil and about characters making the right choice or about a good person being rewarded and a bad person being punished. This is actually not that helpful for our brain for a lot of reasons. You know, it's much more helpful for our brain to see stories in which there are multiple options both of which could be good. Um, and to understand that sometimes life involves having to choose one or the other, and that's hard. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's kind of the innovation of this novel, um, Dream of the Red Chamber, uh, the kind of first great Chinese novel, um, is to give us that experience of having multiple things that can be good, as opposed to the kind of Confucian way of this is good and this is ultimately not good. So this is in the 1300s, we think. Um, how did this book do and who had access to it? initially and over over time, over the years uh, subsequent? Uh, so at the time, its author, uh, Cao Shigong, was basically uh, a an outcast. He failed his tests, so he did not succeed according to the kind of Confucian. I mean, he, you know, in, in, in the American education system, he would have not done well in the SAT. He would basically relegated to a rural shack. Um, and, you know, he did his best to write this novel, which we think he did not complete in his lifetime. We think he died with it incomplete, and we think that someone else completed it. Um, but over time, it became extraordinarily popular. Um, and it is now China's most popular novel. And this speaks, I think, to one of the interesting things which happens with literature is literature, we, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time, uh, you know, thinking about literature as being the product of an author. But really, literature is a product of the audience, or mostly it's a product of the audience. It's, it's, it's shaped deeply by what audiences want. And over time, what audiences want tends to win out over what authors want and also what authorities want. And that's why in a lot of very kind of autocratic regimes, you'll also often see this literature kicking around, which has this kind of very democratic potential or you know, can nurture creativity, imagination, individuality. It's because the public wants that. And that's sort of the story of, of, of Dream of the Red Chamber, 
is that this novel, which is not really a great match for communism, <laughs> has become the most popular novel in communist China. Yeah, you're right here. Uh, I'll just quote. Uh, the neural result of this liter literary innovation is to give our brain the experience of joining a vast cosmopolitan community. Each new character in Dream of the Red Chamber gently expands our inner list of norms, drawing us into a widening panoply, panal panoply of human diversity that, like a richly varied set of friends, makes us more comfortable being ourselves. And I was thinking about this because just recently we had Alison Gopnik, uh, the developmental psychologist, on. And what she's written a lot about and researched, and she calls children, the R&D department of humanity. Their job is to take in as much about the world as possible, but most likely do something different than their parents. I, I don't know. I, I, again, I, I was just thinking, you know, coming up with this for the first time is, is pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, we, I think this is just something we really, really take for granted. I want to talk a little bit, if we can, about you as an archaeologist, right? I mean, you don't have access to everything that you want, right? We'd love to see what was in that library of Alexandria, you know, but, you know, we, we, there's just things that are missing. And sometimes we don't even know they were missing because there's no contextual clues that they were ever there. Um, talk about this process. When you are missing key pieces of information, what else are you looking for? I mean, t tell us how, how you do this as a scholar. That makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, the, the first thing I should say is that I have a very specific method. Um, and I would want anyone who reads the book to know that method and both, I hope, embrace that method and also be skeptical of the method. Uh, because, I mean, that, that's how a book is written. Uh, a book is written using a particular protocol or procedure, and that's its strength, but also its weakness. Um, so in my case, uh, the method of the book is to start backwards from the human brain. So I don't start with history. This is what makes me different from a lot of literary scholars or archivists. I mean, I think if I'd started with history, I never would have written this book because this book covers 5,000 years. It covers hundreds and hundreds of major pieces of literature in many different languages. And if I had started from the beginning and tried to read all those works in the archives, I would still be reading. Uh, so instead, what I did is I sat down um, and I said, okay, what are the primary needs of the human brain based on what we know uh, about kind of how brains operate. What are, the, what are the things that seem to be kind of most basic to the human brain? Um, what are the kind of hurts it experiences? What are the kind of potentials that it has? And then let's start to look through periods of history where it seems like a literary technology emerged that helped deal with that um, and kind of, you know, either alleviate that problem or fulfill that potential. So to take a kind of simple example, the book's first chapter is on courage. Courage is something that humans need all the time. And we need it on a basic existential level just to face the day. Uh, to get up is a hard thing in this world. Uh, and you know we have all sorts of ways that we have of motivating ourselves to get up. But on a certain level, that's almost the most basic project of the day is just to get up in the first place. It's just to start, is to say, you know what? It's hard. It's difficult in a lot of ways. Um, there's gonna be joy out there, but on a fundamental basis, every day, you know, also brings the possibility of tragedy, a lot of, you know, hard things, difficult things to do work requires, you know, uh, pain. So how do I have that courage? Where does that come from? And so when you think about that, you think, well, I mean, the earliest work we have that we know is a source of courage is Homer's Iliad. Um, I mean, it's a book about war, which on a certain level is the kind of most basic 
um, sort of place where courage, or most obvious place where courage is needed on, a, on an immediate level. But also it's a world which is a very hard world. Um, we in the modern world have either kind of gotten rid of gods, you know, we've kind of, we've kind of curated a society where we don't think about gods very much anymore. You know, we think of ourselves as our own gods. You know, we think that maybe we're going to evolve into space beings. Or if we do have gods, most of our gods tend to be very human-centered gods, and they tend to be nice to us. They tend to be concerned about us. And they tend to say, hey, if you do good things, you're going to go into heaven. And, and so, you know, we have this, we, you know, we have in general gods that, that, that are there to kind of support and affirm us. Greek gods are not like that at all. Um, Greek gods are incredibly violent, terrifying. Zeus is a predator and a tyrant. Um, he comes down constantly from the sky to destroy lives for no reason at all. And so imagine yourself in that world for a moment. I mean, imagine that you're getting up every day. Um, it's a hard life in Athens. I mean, Athens is a city that had to import most of its food for most of its history because it was that hard to farm. So imagine that you're always on the brink of starvation. There's pretty much a war at least every year. It seems like, you know, with, with some Greek neighbor or maybe the Persians are coming, you know. Um, your, many of your kids are not making it uh, out of childhood. You know, um, there's all this kind of death around you. And then on top of that, you look at the sky and you think there's someone up there who at any moment might come down and destroy everything. That is a world which takes courage to get up in the morning, you know? And, and so I thought to myself, okay, well, if the Iliad could empower people to get up in that world, there has to be something very powerful in the Iliad, something very specific, a specific technology in the Iliad. And as I talk about in that chapter, there is. Basically, what Homer discovered is that there's this remarkable thing about the human brain, which is that when we sing songs together, when we join our voices together, it makes us feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And it actually, there's a kind of complex chemical cascade, which we can talk about if you want, but isn't really that important, which actually literally generates the feeling of courage, of warmth in the human brain, of I can face this. And so... That is done historically through war songs, but it's also of course done through hymns in church. Anytime you get together with a group of people and you sing, you sing at a funeral, sing anywhere, that makes you feel like you're part of something bigger. It makes you feel stronger. Um, those of us who sing in the shower, <laughs> that often makes you feel like a bigger person, you know, cause you feel like, you know. And so what Homer did is he brilliantly figured out there's a way to take that and put that into a piece of literature. There's a technology that I can put in the literature such that it makes you feel like you're singing along with something bigger, even when you're reading it silently. And that was the kind of breakthrough of the Iliad. And then that breakthrough has been repeated again and again and again. It can be found, as I talk about in the chapter, through all sorts of modern literature. I mean, a classic example is the Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, where you read it and it just makes you feel more courageous. And the way it does it is by talking in what is, is technically called um, a, a, a sentimental omniscience. So it's basically a third person God voice that uh, experiences human emotions. And when we read a story, so it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You see how that's a third person narrative? It was, it was. But it feels from a human perspective because it's able to say this was bad and this was good. Where somebody that was totally objective wouldn't care, you know? Um, and so it brings us in and it makes us feel this sense of what I call an almighty heart. And once we connect with that almighty heart, we feel we matter because the universe is like us. 
And even if we die, the things that matter to us will live on because we are part of something bigger, something that we feel inside us in our blood. And it's that psychological, emotional feeling that causes courage and that allows people to sacrifice themselves, not just in war, but doing things that are much more important. I mean, my uh, grandfather was in the Second World War, but not as a, uh, a combatant, but as a doctor on the battlefield. You know, you think of the courage that that takes <laughs> to just run out of a trench uh, when everyone is shooting at you and you have nothing to defend yourself, you know? Um, I mean, and that's where that kind of courage can come from is that sense of I'm part of something bigger I'm part of something the bigger that will live on after me. It, it's not possible to know with the ancients uh, just because of all the missing pieces. You can extrapolate some of it. Um, and it was really interesting talking about how literature is the audience. And so many of the later stories um, in this, this in your book, which is sort of narrative, sort of chronologic, but not quite, are responding. A lot of them are, are so-and-so read this novel and found it unsatisfactory. Um, you know, Cervantes was uh, appalled by the, um, by people getting caught up in the chivalric romances and Jane Austen was disgusted by all the hyper romance of, of Pamela, things like that. Um, how much of that do you think is, was intentional? I mean, surely they meant to say, I'm responding to this and they, I meant to, they meant to write something that would be popular and would be read. But you talk about the inventions, you have the names and things. Do you get the sense that they really said, I, oh, this is what is missing here. This is what I have to put in my books. Or did they just, were they just so brilliant that they happened on something that was so simple and so universal? So I think a lot of literature is non-intentional, but I had to write the book in a way that told a story. <laughs> and if you're going to write a book in a way that tells a story, you have to tell it in a way that gives you access to the author's mind as they're possibly having these epiphanies. But the, the reality is, no, I do not think that most literary creation is intentional. And I don't think that most human creation in general is intentional in that specific way. I think what happens is, is our brain forms a kind of close relationship with its environments. And um, in the case of literature, that means forming a close relationship with your audience. And so anyone who's ever had an audience, it's the same thing if you have a patient, is you start to intuit, oh, if I do this, I'm expecting this feedback. Is that actually what happens? And you start to run what's basically a kind of miniature experiment. You try something and then see, is the person reacting like I imagined? And, you know, what happens if you're a good doctor or a good writer is a lot of the time it works. But if you're a great doctor or a great writer, what happens is, is sometimes it doesn't work. And rather than ignoring that moment, you say, why didn't it work? What else could I do? What else could I try? And then you start to kind of, kind of play around in that space. And then as you play around in that space, stuff starts to happen. Creativity starts to occur. It doesn't occur all at once. Um, but slowly you can start to figure things out and find things out. And that's generally what happened with a lot of these writers, I think, is they would read another writer. They would love that writer. And then they would set out to do what that writer had done. But then they would start to be like, well, this isn't quite working for me. Like, why isn't it working? What am I missing? Let me try something different. And they start to play around and that adds something. And again, it's the same thing that most of us have through our training is we have teachers that we deeply admire and then we try and imitate that teacher. And then we figure out it's not quite working for me. Why not? And then it's in that space that the innovation occurs. So it's not they set out to do it. It's more actually that they set out just to kind of do the old thing and it didn't quite work. And now what do I do in this situation? Yeah, I inadvertently made it better. Yeah, that's the best kind of serendipity. Um, 
one of the things that um, I wonder about, uh, particularly with um, medical people who read this or scientists who read the book, and, and as I said before, they definitely should, is if, if, it's, if you read it not carefully, you think, uh-oh, uh, Angus is saying, I have to recognize this stuff in the literature. Could you please reassure our, liter our listeners that that's not the point of this, that you don't have to know that there's a secret disclosure or an empathy generator. You have to just read the literature and respond to it. And that's where, that's where you're going to get the benefit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a big part of the book is to say literature is having all these wonderful benefits automatically. Uh, and uh, we've all felt a lot of those basic benefits without even knowing what it's doing. Uh, we've, we've just kind of put ourselves over to it. We've trusted the author and we've gotten that. And that's just, I mean, anytime you felt empathy for a character, love for a character, sense of curiosity in a book, sense of wonder, wonder is perhaps the most primordial experience of wonder, uh, of literature, just that sense of wow. Um, and that has enormous positive effects for the brain. It just creates a sense of meaning, of purpose that can be quite long lasting. So all of that stuff is just already there uh, without you needing to know it. The idea behind the book is kind of twofold. Um, first of all, just to kind of mark some of these things so that if you ever wondered where they came from, you know, in the same way that if you're on a, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're on a, a walk through nature, you can pause and be like, wow, you know, this is how this tree works, or this is where, you know, um, this thing came from, just to kind of mark that, just to kind of grow your sense of, of, of how special and how unique it is. But also, if you want to empower you to get more out of it, um, because I think what happens a lot of times is we read a book and we don't get it right away. And then we think, oh, well, this book must not be for me or something, or I just don't get it. And then we throw it aside. Um, and what basically I'm trying to do here is basically say it's like if you have a bike and you don't know how it works and you get on it backwards and then it falls over and you're like, this is a ridiculous and inefficient mode of transportation. Why would I ride a bike? And then someone comes up to you and says, actually, turn yourself around and put your feet on these pedals and push them. And they're like, wow, this is actually pretty easy and I like it and I get a lot out of it. Um, that's basically what I'm just trying to do with a lot of the book is basically say, actually, it's not that complicated, most of these books. Um, there's a huge benefit you can get from them pretty easily and pretty quickly, just as long as you know where the pedals are. And so if you're not getting that effect and you think you might like it, here's the effect. And so a classic example for me would be something like Hamlet. Hamlet is classically wonderful at helping people process grief. And there's a lot of complicated reasons for that. But one of the main reasons that it's good is it provides a kind of waiting space where things aren't happening. And a big part of what's important about processing grief is just dwelling in that space and allowing your brain to process grief as opposed to kind of make everything right too fast and distract yourself and kind of, you know, run on from it. And so that's why a lot of what happens in Hamlet is nothing. <laughs> there's a lot of nothing happening in Hamlet and that's famously therapeutic for a lot of people, but other people read it and they get agitated. They're like, why is nothing happening? What's going on? What's wrong with Hamlet? You know, and then they start trying to push against the story and then they think something must be wrong with Hamlet and they throw it aside. And all I'm saying is no, um, you can lean into that. You can just allow yourself to relax, accept that nothing is happening, but that nothing happening is something happening and just go with that and start to feel the transformation. So that's a kind of a big part of what's behind the book is, is not to kind of compel people to read in a certain way or tell them you have to do this, but to give them the opportunity to get more out of the books if they want to, by showing them simple tick, uh, trip, uh, tips and techniques for just getting that kind of added psychological grip. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's it just it's time and place, right? I mean, if I, my understanding, one of the questions of neuroscience that we're not even close to answering is, is something as simple as going to a restaurant and what you happen to pick on the menu that day. There's no neurological reason why you picked a steak over, uh, you know, salmon or something. Nobody knows. Just that's what you picked that night. And the next night you might pick something different. And what I get gained from this is that there's even Canterbury Tales. I mean, God, I, oh my God, that was drudgery going through that in, in AP English in high school. But when you talked about the Catholic Church inserting their own dogma into it and, you know, using it as a tool, it just got me thinking, maybe I want to take a look at that again. You know, it's just different now. And same for, you know, songs, you know, might have more meaning after you've been in a relationship instead of being in, you know, early high school, you've never been in one at all. It's not going to mean anything to you, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and that's so true. I mean, we, we get that with music in our lives. Absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you the number of songs that, uh, you know, my parents listened to when I was a child, where I was like, this is terrible music. Why would anyone yes, listen yes. to this music? It's so awful. And then you listen to it 20 years later and it makes you cry. It makes you weep. You know, I mean, you're overcome uh, and you suddenly realize this is just so incredibly powerful. And that's exactly right with literature. I mean, sometimes you just don't encounter a book at the right moment in your life for it to click with you. I mean, I hope no one ever re ever needs Hamlet. I mean, I hope that no one is ever going through grief. I mean, and for hopefully long periods of our life, we're not coping with that. And in that case, there's really no re need to read Hamlet, you know? I mean, it's, it's to help you grieve. Um, but, you know, when that does happen to you, you want it there, just like you want those songs there to help you process those emotional moments. And I think, you know, one of the things that has happened in the modern world is we've become less and less comfortable acknowledging our emotional side. Um, and we've become more and more impatient and we want things to happen faster and faster and faster. And, you know, I, I see this, I don't know if this is, if this is true in general in medicine, but I definitely see it among people I know where it's like, I just want to go to the doctor and get fixed. I want to get fixed. And then, you know, I want to go to the other place and I want to get fixed. I want to read a self-help book and I want to get fixed and I want everything to be fixed. And it's like, humans are not machines. You can't just like swap a part out, you know? I mean, a lot of these things take time. Emotions in general take time. And that also means that at some point we have to be mature enough ourselves to undergo certain types of growth and therapy and be ready for those things to happen. And we need to actually do kind of work on ourselves to get there. So I completely agree with you that there's a kind of whole maturation process that hopefully literature matures with us as we go through our lives. Yeah. One of my favorite biography titles of all time, it was just Colin Powell's book and it was just simply titled, it worked for me. <laughs> he said, he said, you know, this is my story. This is what I did. It may have nothing to do with you, but that's, that's the problem with all of these self-help books. I think it, it's some formula that worked for somebody, maybe more than one, but it may or may not work for you. It's, it's, and I think that's the whole, that's the whole message here in your book. Yeah. And I will say one of the brilliant things about that Colin Powell book and in general is my experience of, of, of very, very wise people is that they have a very strong sense of irony about themselves, um, which produces a strong sense of humility and a strong sense of perspective, you know? And they have learned in going through life that, you know, there are lots of different ways to go through life. And, you know, what worked for me may not work for you. Um, and maybe I got really lucky, you know, <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe I just kind of lucked into this. And, and I talk in the book, actually, that that is itself a technology that, that emerges out of Greek philosophy, out of actually Socrates, this idea that basically satire, which is now used ubiquitously in our society to mock everybody. And, you know, we, and we have all these people going around making fun of each other and, you know, mocking people from you know, who have this belief, who have that belief or whatever. You know, we all feel good about ourselves for making fun of other people. But actually what Socrates shows is that the most powerful use medically of satire is to turn it against yourself. 
and to develop a kind of ironic relationship with yourself and to realize your own smallness. Because in doing that, you actually lift yourself out of a lot of pain. You open yourself up to deeper, more meaningful friendships. By taking yourself less seriously, you reduce your stress and anxiety. You become less of a control freak, try to manage everything. And instead you say, look, there's only so much I can do. And I feel lucky that I can do that. And I'm going to absolutely do it the best that I can, but I'm also going to appreciate my limits. I mean, that to me is real wisdom that you get over life. And again, that's one of the great things about literature is it's kind of wisdom. I mean, I don't know if it's knowledge in the sense of being truth. You know, I don't know if you could go to a book and, and find the meaning of life in it, but I think you can definitely find wisdom, which is to say you can find things that people have learned over long, hard experience, have worked for them and could possibly work for you. Yeah, it's experiential, right? I mean, for thousands of years, farmers know when to plant their crops, how much to water. They don't know what photosynthesis is. It doesn't matter. And, and we can look at that now looking back and look at soil evidence and look at, you know, plagues and fungus and, you know, what may have brought this civilization down or, or not or speculate on that. But none of that mattered to them. They just knew generally what worked. And maybe that's the way a lot of these these writers were, right? Oh, I think absolutely. And I think a big part of the connection there is, is the kind of sense of organic learning, you know, um, I mean, I think, again, going to this idea that we live in a very impatient society, a lot of times people want to come up with, with rules and then apply them to everything all over the place, you know, um, you know, and say, oh, I have these three simple rules for living. And then if you just apply them in all, in all areas of your life, you'll have maximum success and joy will follow. And actually, it takes work to have a good life. It takes work to be kind to the people around you. Um, and that's because growth is organic in the same way that you know, a farm is organic, you know, you can't just like machine in the soil and force it. You can't compel life to kind of operate in those ways. And, you know, that's why to me, um, the wonderful thing about literature is that sense that it will grow with you. Um, and the more you give to it, the more you will get back from it. And I think most of what we're looking for when we have a relationship with literature is that sense that I'm going to get that, that back from literature because, it's not the easiest thing to read all the time. I mean, if you're sitting down and you're thinking to yourself, do I want to read a detective novel or do I want to read Maya Angelou? You might read the detective novel because it seems like it might be easier. But, or just go to Netflix. <laughs> or just go to Netflix, right. No, exactly. But the idea behind the book is to say, look, you can make consistent progress in literature in a kind of simple, straightforward way. I mean, it's just like if you take a class in anything with someone who's an expert, um, what seems impossible or daunting, you start to make these little steps, step after step after step, you start to see yourself grow, you start to see yourself develop over time. And then before you know it, you're like, I've actually grown hugely at this. I've become much better at this just by going step by step by step. Something that seemed impossible and overwhelming and complex has been kind of broken down. And, and the idea behind the book is to sort of do that a little bit with literature and say, here you can go step by step by step by step. And if you do that quite quickly, you will be able to read Homer confidently, not perfectly, but confidently. You'll be able to read Sappho. You'll be able to read, you know, 20th century novels. You'll be able to read almost anything confidently because you'll understand here's what it's trying to do. Um, and once you understand what it's trying to do, you can then feel that action with yourself, become comfortable that you're working with it, and it all grows from there. All right, here's kind of a neuroscience question. Um, be careful I ask this because just what you just said, this isn't, you know, 
Angus, what's the rules for reading here? How should we read? But <laughs> I, I, I tried to look up a, a l- little bit of research on this about memory retention and reading. So um, I've heard different discussions about this that um, you can, you know, we lose 80% of what we read. That's on average. So of course, that may or may not be true in one. And that's an average. That does, you know, some things we remember more than others. And some people remember more than, than, than others. But um, reading is an investment, right? It's an investment in your time. You can't read everything. And you do have to make some tough decisions sometimes. And as you get older and you have responsibilities and you're a parent, you run a business, you just don't have all the time that you'd like. Um, how do you think about this, Angus? Because I don't know if this is true or not. This is my hypothesis. Doing this, what we're doing right now, if I read a book and then I talk with the author, we have a discussion about it, I think my memory retention's higher. But this is not scalable. Not everybody can do this. Um, but everybody could get together with a reading group, for example. Um, everybody can watch the great courses, you know, you have one of those, and then, you know, find other students to get online with, even, you know, like this. Uh, there's been another approach, just keeping a list of all your books and making notes. I mean, I, you know, you can see right here, I, I highlight different passages and I come back mostly for the, the, you know, for our discussions, but it makes it easier if I have something in my head, where did I see that? And I can page through and it's a little faster to find it. And of course you can use Kindles now, it's even faster, right? Um, but then we're exporting our memory functions to a computer. How do you think about this, Angus? And how do you, how do you read? And, that, and I recognize it may or may not be right for all of us, but um, as an investment of time, how can we get the most out of it? Well, well first of all, um, just like anything in life, it's knowing what you want out of it. And what I would say is that there are three broad things you can really get out of literature. You can get healing out of literature, so if you have sort of negative emotional states in your brain that you kind of want to work through and process, literature can help. It's probably not going to be the only thing, but literature can help with that. Um, that's the first thing is healing. The second thing is emotional growth in terms of if you just want more purpose, meaning, joy, curiosity, fun, those are all things that literature can help with. And then the final thing is, is this kind of higher intellectual category of creativity, problem solving, scientific thinking, um, unbiasing your mind. These are all things that literature can help you with. A kind of overall way of capturing all of those is basically to say anything your brain can do, literature can help your brain do it a little bit better. Um, and so what is it that you want your brain to do? Uh, and you know, each chapter of the book has a different heading, which explains this is what this chapter is going to help your brain do better. So the book is kind of arranged in that way. And if you don't want to read the book, if you just want to read other books and talk to other people, I would use the same approach. I would say, um, talk to someone and say, well, what did you get out of this book? And if they said, well, it made me feel the sense of purpose or meaning or this, and that sounds interesting to you, read that book. So again, it's all about having a certain sense of purpose about where you're going and not just trying to go amorphously in because the human brain doesn't really operate very well like that. You know, unlike a computer, a computer can just memorize everything for no purpose. Human memory doesn't really work like that. Um, you know, we when we do remember things, we tend to remember them because there's a kind of strong emotional context for them, which tells our brain this is important. But our brain isn't really set up to, to memorize so much as it is set up to explore, experiment, and really learn. Learning is different from memorizing, you know? Um, to your other point, having a friend that you read with, having a reading group, that's so important. I mean, to have a community, a shared community that has a shared sense of purpose, that you're doing this together. 
I think that's something we lose a lot in the modern world because we tend to be somewhat relentlessly focused on individualism and the sense that it's me and I'm doing this and I have to be my most perfect self. But um, that's not, again, the way the human brain works. The brain did not evolve to be a pure individual. Our brain is deeply social. And there are good arguments to be made that we actually can become our most individual selves in societies. And what I mean by that is that the more we have each other supporting each other, uh, the more I can specialize. So, you know, if I was just all by myself, I would have to do everything. You know, I would, I would have to be a soldier and a farmer and an entertainer and a clothes maker. But when we get into a society together, all of a sudden I can start to pick, oh, no, actually, I don't want to do all those things. I want to do this one thing. And then I want to really specialize this one thing. And so the bigger the society becomes, the more room there is for specialization, the more room there is for individuality. And the point there is basically that, again, society is a kind of bedrock of the human mind. And, and things we do together are just more meaningful to us, more supportive to us. So get a reading group, get a book club, um, get together a group of friends who want to accomplish the same thing, who want to climb the same mountain as you. You'll motivate each other. If you both want to read all of Jane Austen, read all of Jane Austen together. You know, um, If you both, all of you want to do something else, do that thing together. But that Tapping into that motivation that we give each other through community, I think, is uh, is a second really powerful way to, to kind of make any learning stick. So in the um, in the studies that you did with the medical students and the burnout, do you think it was the discussion groups, or the reading, obviously a combination, but um, uh, which part of it do you think was most important? And are you going to try to tease that out in the longitudinal studies? Yeah, we are going to try and tease that out. And that's a fantastic question, because the truth of the matter is we don't really know. Um, we don't know. I mean, first of all, what we did in the study is we empowered the students to pick their own books. Oh, okay. And we thought that was important. I mean, we gave them a kind of um, a set of boundaries. You know, we said, you know, we want the books to be kind of, you know, uh, of this kind, you know, novels or so on and so forth. But, but they, we tried to empower them so that they had the autonomy because that, again, is important in burnout. You know, the sense that we have control over our space. And we thought if we walked in there and we're like, you will all read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that might just kind of re-contribute to the or problem. Or a medical textbook. Know? Right, exactly. You know, um, <laughs> knock out to, uh, flash two, yeah. two birds with one stone here. <laughs> yeah. And that honestly goes back to kind of one of my deeper theories on, on how literary education should in general be um, reformed, which is that I do think there should be more choice in it. What all of us love about literature as children when we're young or as we get older when we go into a library is just a sense of possibility. The reason that going into a library is so exciting is just a sense there are so many books on the shelves. And it's just so wonderful to feel like I could read any of these books. I mean, that to me is just the most kind of quintessential joy is to walk in and feel like I could read anything. And we take that away from people when we are like, you must read this book and then you must read this book. So first of all, I think one of the big things in the burnout study that we did that I think was empowering was we just created a, a, a zone of choice. Um, I also do think that there's no question that having these conversations in groups increases the kind of emotional grip and also increases the sense of meaning um, because it becomes just bigger than your personal experience. And one thing that we almost all experience when we read a book is usually we want to share it with somebody. Yeah. I mean, usually you're like, oh, I just want to tell this to somebody. And then, and then the unfortunate thing that can happen is if no one in our life has read the book, we then become this terrible bore. Who's like, I just have to explain these 45 plot points in order to explain this thing. And the person's like, I'm really checked out here, you know? Um, and, and I, so I do think it's just so exciting to walk into a space where everybody has already read the book. They're already in that same space. And it's just like, we have liftoff together. So that's a big part of it. 
Um, and I'll just be honest and say that whenever I do a first study, so, you know, I do a lot of these kind of collaborative research and literature is just a big baggy phenomenon. Uh, you know, and it's complicated. <laughs> you know, anyone who's done research knows that the more precise and specific and the more you can control the variables, the more likely you are to actually have research that is compelling and convincing. And literature is the complete opposite of that. Literature is just so many things going on at the same time and what matters. And so usually what I do for first rounds of research is I try and embrace that and say, let's just try and do something and see if it works at all. And then once we know that something is happening here, let's kind of break it out into kind of smaller populations and smaller groups. And so your point, I think for the next round, we're going to have people read individually and then also people read and have conversations. Um, and we're going to also have a group where people are assigned something and we're going to have all these different tracks and we're going to, and it's, it's, it's difficult because obviously you don't want to waste medical students time and do something you think is going to be counterproductive <laughs> and possibly, you know, you know, um, but, you know, we're going to try and hopefully run that, run that line and kind of get a little more clarity. Angus, how much time do you have left? Um, 10 more minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, do you, by the way, do you take notes when you're reading? Do you approach things differently, different on subject? I mean, just your, just your process. I'm curious. So um, this is something that actually drives my, my wife nuts, is that uh, I never take a camera anywhere and never photograph anything because I have this kind of like radically experiential approach to life where I'm like, the moment I step back and start analyzing it, I'm not experiencing it anymore. And so my approach to life is really kind of to immerse yourself totally in whatever you're doing and then kind of take a break from it. And then in that break process and see what's happening. And then if you can repeat the experience with the kind of wisdom that you've gained from perspective, rather than trying to analyze it mid process, if that makes sense. Um, and so, so, you know, a lot of times I'll go somewhere and be like, that was amazing, you know, and, you know, my wife would be like, we have no photographs of it. And I'll be like, let's go back there again. And she'd be like, but well, we just went there. Um, and so that's a little bit my approach. And so in terms of reading literature, that's what I do is I will just read a book, enjoy the book, um, try to immerse myself as deeply as I can in the book, then do something else, often just exercise or hang out with my kids or something completely non-related. And then the way the brain works, something will pop into your head and you'll be like, you know what, that seems really important and really special. And then you'll go back and you'll kind of look for that. And to me, that's a kind of basic scientific approach in that, you know, you, you have a prediction in your head, you then go back and test it, see if it works. And then you go look for other books to see if the prediction holds up. If the prediction then holds up in these other books, you then try and maybe run a psychology study, a psychology trial to see if it continues to hold up. So that's a little bit of my process, uh, you know, radical experientialism, followed by a kind of more measured approach afterwards. Yeah. It's also a uh, writer's approach to reading because you write the manuscript, then you put it away for however many months, then bring it out and say, is there anything here? Oh, okay, no, this is junk. Or, okay, I can work with this. So really interesting. I mean, that's so true. And, you know, I, I teach, I work with a lot of MFAs and that's one thing I really try and emphasize to them. And, and I, you know, and I, I will pass on your wisdom to them too, to that effect, which is that like for your first draft, just write it. Just write that first draft. So many people get caught up and never write the first draft because they start thinking in the middle of it and trying to analyze it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just write the first draft. Write everything you have. Write it as best as you can. Then put it away. And then usually there'll be a light bulb moment where you're like, oh, you know what? I actually should have started it here or this, or that, and the other thing. And then, then the second time through, you'll actually be able to write it intentionally. But it's that process of just going in spontaneously and then discovering the intention after the fact 
that's just how the brain works. It can sometimes be maddening because we'd all love to have a plan, you know, that we could enact. But I do think the reason the brain works that way is because life works that way. Right. And, you know, we evolved in this environment where everything was unstable. You couldn't really have a plan because if you had a plan, life was going to tear it apart. So you jumped in and then stepped back, you know, revised and jumped back in again. And it's that it's that process that which is eventually, you know, creative. Yeah. And, and such an important uh point or lesson for young doctors, especially to learn, because you think, oh, if I do all these steps, my patient is going to get better. And in reality, if you do all those steps, your patient may still not get better. But as you point out, the best doctors will say, well, why not? What, was it in the process or was it something about the patient or something, I don't know, something from the, from the gods from above? And, and uh, you know, can we face up to that by, by joining hands in song or something? Yeah. And I, um, I do not want to say anything about medicine. I, I've confessed to you both that I come from a family of doctors and they will listen to this podcast. If I say anything about medicine, I'll be castigated by the actual doctors <laughs> in my family uh, because I do know nothing about uh, the actual workings of medicine. But I, my current project is actually on why human intelligence is different from AI, uh, artificial intelligence, different from computers. And, you know, I'm something of a computer skeptic. Uh, if people want to kind of Google me, they'll see that I've written a bunch of pieces, both academic and popular, in which I've sort of explained why I think that, that humans have certain intellectual abilities, um, which can be identified in the brain, which aren't mystic or magical, which computers don't have. And to your point about young doctors, and, and I think young people in general wanting to have this decision tree or these set of rules for following, that's what a computer does. And if life was that simple, computers would be excelling at everything. They would, you would just follow the rules and everything would work. But life requires creativity, imagination, learning, and growth. And even though that can be scary at the beginning of a career, because you don't want to get something wrong, you want to succeed, you know, you have all these kinds of, you know, in your head, you have all these checklists you're kind of going through, you know, got to do this, got to do that, got to become famous, whatever, you know, actually, that's the joy of life. Is the fact that it's not a checklist. It's not driven by rules. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, if I were a god, I would not have created a world where anyone could succeed by rules because that would be incredibly boring. You know, I mean, you know, I would have created a world where there could be growth, dynamism, challenge, opportunity, and all these meaningful things. And I do think that part of it is our educational system where we teach students that there is a right and a wrong, that they have to succeed. These things, I do think over time, kind of create these problems. Um, but wherever it comes from, I do think it is the job of, of those of us who have failed and failed a lot uh, to say, you know what, it's okay, you can fail, fail a lot and still come back from that and actually be a better person from that and have courage, have empathy, have openness. Um, and, you know, always, of course, follow the rules when they're working, but just be prepared the moment they stop working to be your most imaginative self. So um, put you on the spot a little bit, and this may not be fair. Having worked with medical students in this study and with a little idea of how they think, and also young people, students in general, is there a chapter in WonderWorks that you can point at and say, this is the chapter that is going to speak the most to you? Uh, is this, you know, start here, this is where you'll, and then work outward, or you only have um, uh, 20 minutes, read this chapter then? So what's interesting to me is I have gotten the most positive response um, from medical students, the same positive response I've got from the veterans communities that I've worked with. So I work with a lot of veterans through the, through the DOD, um, and um, I work with some medical students. And the chapter that they actually have shown the most interest in, and I'm not sure if it's personal or it's based on their patients, is, um, is the chapter where I talk about numbness and kind of restoring feeling. 
Right. And this is um, often shorthanded, um, not necessarily accurately, but it's a useful shorthand. It's type 2 PTSD. It basically just means uh, a sense of um, depersonalization, derealization, uh, a sense of dissociation, a sense that life, you know, it somehow is less real to you. You're less connected to it. And this, this is a problem that I have experienced with an astonishing number of veterans. Um, veterans who, who have come up to me and said, you know, I always thought that PTSD was totally bogus. All these people having these flashbacks and this hyper, I just thought it was all made up way to get out of service. But when you tell me that actually it's possible to go through trauma and to experience the opposite effect and to actually feel kind of deadened and numb and be unable to feel, um, that resonates with me because I just can't tell you how tragic it is. I have my kids, I have my family, I love them, but I just don't feel anything for them. Like I'm just there all the time, completely numb, completely dissociated. Um, and a lot of conversations I have with medical students, um, they've said that that same chapter in the book resonates with them. And one of the things that chapter talks about is how the Greeks recognize this, how the kind of final developments of Greek tragedy is to kind of combat this problem of, of the, this other experience of trauma, of not having uncontrollable emotions, but actually having no emotions talk a little bit about the neuroscience of it, kind of how it works in the brain, where it comes from, but then also very simply the way to kind of start to treat it therapeutically, which has only really been discovered in VA clinics over the past 10, 15 years, um, is to surprise people into positive feelings. If you surprise someone into gratitude or you surprise them into joy, uh, the brain suddenly is like, whoa, because what the reason that the brain feels numbness, we think, the reason it dissociates, we think, is because it's just shutting down very hard on any feeling because it realizes that that feeling is probably going to cause me problems. You know, it's basically our prefrontal cortex just aggressively suppressing our amygdala. It's just basically being like, you know, I don't want any activity from that area of the brain because that's caused me a lot of grief and sadness and misery. And if you can surprise the prefrontal cortex, if you can surprise the rest of the brain and be like, whoa, that was fun. Then the brain starts to relax. It starts to come a little bit out of its clench. And what's astonishing to me is I've seen this process work in therapy and people have these breakthroughs where they just have tears of joy break down and they can start feeling again. And so that chapter to me has, has resonated with a lot of people. And I think maybe one of the reasons it resonates is because we live in a world right now where I don't want to imply that we're all suffering from dissociation uh, because we're not. And, you know, that's a clinical condition. But I do think we are a lot of us feeling a little bit of a kind of modest version of dissociation in the sense that everything is happening so fast. We have so little time to process anything. Um, we're oftentimes when we turn on TV or anything else, we get overwhelmed with negative stuff, you know, and we start to kind of shut down a lot um, and almost machine through life. And we start stop realizing that actually every moment is a moment for joy, for fun, for delight, that the people around us can give us love. And that doesn't cost us anything. Like that's not going to make our day harder to love people. It's not going to make our day harder to love our patients or to love our parents or to love our kids or to love our students or whatever, you know, let go of that fear that somehow that's going to make everything harder and start to kind of grow in that emotional way and realize that actually that can be sustaining and nurturing. So that has been something that I have been surprised, but that has been the chapter which again and again and again and again, young doctors have come back to me and said, that's the chapter that, that really resonated for me. I found that chapter fascinating. And that chapter Honestly, it's at the very fringes of research. You know, I don't want to pretend like that chapter is like based on, you know, thousands and thousands of studies. I mean, that chapter is based on a few studies, which I think are hopefully going to grow. But that seems to be the one that resonates the most. I guess finish things up here. Um, you know, when I think back to 
my undergrad years. I mean, I don't regret getting a history degree. I think it's it's been very helpful for me. And 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 I, I, but if I were to have to do it again, I think I would feel as a kid today enormous pressure to go to, into something more vocational, you know, an engineering degree or computer science. Um, I, I think it, it, you just you say, well, I can get to my other interests later, but I, I got to get this. Um, and we've all read and heard, the, you know, the stories, you know, the decline of humanities departments and missions and, and, and student interest in this. How do you feel about this, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years? Do you think that maybe a hybrid approach is, is different, you know, where you're more involved with other departments doing research that you don't necessarily have to pick one path or the other or, heck, you, do, you know, go to an engineering school, but go, you know, take some classes online through project narrative, you know, something like that. I mean, how do you, one, are you optimistic and, and how do you, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, I am optimistic. That might be because I've read too much literature. When you read a lot of literature, <laughs> it makes you happy and feel good about things. Um, but look, yes, I mean, to your broader point, I do think there is a problem. We all know that problem in terms of the crisis in, in, in English departments and in the humanities. And I do think a lot of that problem is self-inflicted because I do think that literature is possibly the most powerful thing that humans have ever invented. I mean, it's just extraordinary what our favorite books can do, how they can kind of, tra kind of transform us. And so the fact that there isn't more enthusiasm for that, and that we don't realize the enormous practical benefits, and the fact that what's happened in the academy is it's become this very arcane, weird thing <laughs> that seems to have no utility, when it's, it's original function is to be very, very useful and to help do the most useful thing, which is to grow and develop and nurture us as people. I mean, what could be more useful than becoming your most complete self? And as I talk about in the book, I mean, if you want to become a better engineer, read literature. If you want to become a better doctor, read literature. If you want to become a better scientist, read literature. I mean, um, it won't do everything for you. You still need to do a lot of medicine and science and engineering, but it will help kind of build some of the core skills in terms of empathy, in terms of curiosity, in terms of imagination. It will do all those wonderful things, which will help kind of power you on. Um, and so what I really think has happened is that is that our classes have failed the students and have failed the general public. And I think hopefully what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a turnaround and um, that over time, we're gonna to start to realize, yes, the more we connect with the sciences, the more we connect with medicine. I mean, you know, the thing about medicine is people forget, I mean, 150 years ago, medicine was basically in the same place that the humanities is now. I mean, it was not scientific. Uh, I mean, you can read the Merck Manual. It's like, it's prescribing, you know, I mean, cocaine uh, for various ailments and, you know, and suggesting that like smoking cures asthma and, you know, there's still leeches uh, in, in a lot of early 20th century medical textbooks, you know, and, you know, as a way to kind of cure fevers and stuff, you know, um, and there was this kind of, I think, real kind of golden age that kind of kicked off in medicine. You know, you could argue at the end of the 19th century, certainly by the beginning of the 20th century, and it just transformed itself. And it has become one of the pillars of modern life. I mean, you just see it in terms of how intense the general public is about healthcare. Um, you know, we realize how important medicine is because medicine had the courage to reinvent itself and to put itself on a kind of scientific basis and to put the patients first. I mean, really the problem before that was the doctors had put themselves first and we're like, we have this knowledge, which is like secret knowledge, you know, and we're reading these kind of papyri, you know, and only we know the, the, the you know, the correct way to do these things. And instead they're like, is this actually making you better? Is this helping you? Let me start to run studies and trials and let me put patients first, you know. Um, and that was the transformation. And I think in English departments and literature departments and humanities departments, when we put the students first, when we put the world first, when we say, does this work for you? Does this make your life better? 
then there's going to be a revolution. There's going to be a transformation. I hope it happens in my lifetime. It can happen in my lifetime. I hope I get to see it and participate in it. But I know that eventually it will come because just in the same way that I know that medicine is real. I mean, medicine was always real. You know, even if doctors weren't always real, medicine was always real. Um, I feel the same way about literature. You know, literature is real. It works. It's powerful. And more importantly, it can grow. There are innovations waiting for us in our future. There are young writers out there that could transform literature and with it transform the future of our world, uh, of our communities. And so I know that's going to happen some way or other. And hopefully those of us who are faculty, those of us who are professors can kind of put our egos aside, put other people first and uh, join in that transition. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Wish I could add you as a professor. <laughs> well, that's, that's actually a good place to, to close it up. I mean, I've got 10 more questions we didn't get to, but that's the way it goes, you know. <laughs> we didn't get to the lost plays of Shakespeare when I asked you something about that and the motion picture code in 1930. That was great. Anyway, a lot, a lot of stuff, but we'll, for another conversation. But to, to wrap it up here, Angus, you know, it's, uh, it's Friday afternoon, so we gotta got to get going. Tell everybody listening where they can find out, find your book, find more about you, Project Narrative, your research, and um, we'll put all those links up online, of course. Okay, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a professor of story science, which is a little bit of a made up field, uh, but there's real research behind it at Ohio State's Project Narrative. So you can find me. I think I'm pretty much the only Angus. If you Google Angus in Ohio, I'm pretty sure that that'll come <laughs> up. Uh, the book is the book is Wonderworks. Um, uh, it's from Simon Schuster. Malcolm Gladwell likes it. Um, a lot of other people who are smarter than me like it. Uh, so you can go read the blurbs and decide for yourself if you like it. And also I'm doing a lot of research partnerships now with the University of Pennsylvania. And so I'll probably give you guys the link for that website too. You can go to the University of Pennsylvania and see kind of some of the, the, the studies that uh, we're, we've got ongoing there. Yeah, we'll get links up to all of that um, and then more on the website. And Angus, man, a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Uh, that was a blast. Thank you guys. And look, anytime, I can't tell you what an honor it is is to be on a podcast that's uh, listened to uh, by doctors. And again, you know, I come from a family, a, a kind of a Cumbrian family of doctors back in England, back all the way back to when uh, there were really no medical schools. And as a doctor, you would sort of train yourself and then go before the boards and have to kind of pass this test and then come back to your little rural village in kind of Northern England or Southern Scotland and do medicine. So this to me, I mean, the fact that I get a chance to kind of uh, 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 talk to doctors is just an enormous honor and um, anytime. Now, it's an honor to have you. I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I really do. I mean, the two lovers of the humanities here, me and Keith, um, we're, we're, we're behind you, obviously. Um, with that said, um, everyone, wherever, whenever you're listening to, to us here, we'll uh, see you here next time. Take care. Bam, that's it. Thanks. Oh, that was great. Um, two, two.